In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. National Forest System, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hi, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Aislinn Green. I don't know about you, but I am finally beginning to dip my toes back into the travel waters. For example, I recently took my first flight in nearly two years, which took me to Alaska. Getting back out in the world, it really just makes me want to travel more. So, lucky for us, the creative folks I've worked with over the past seven years, comedians, philosophers, novelists, they feel the same way. So each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from one of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. Ready? Let's go. Now let's hear a tale from Louis Jude Soki. Louis is a professor of English at Boston University, as well as the George and Joyce Wien Chair and Director of African American Studies. He's also the author of a memoir released in February 2021 called Floating in a Most Peculiar Way. Reading it, I was so struck by his life. He was born in what is now Nigeria. He spent his early childhood in Jamaica, and then he moved to Los Angeles. And through it all, he kind of struggled to find his place. But then, years later, he was on his way home following a slightly disappointing trip to Nigeria, and he had a few days in London. Little did he know, he had landed right before the city's famous Notting Hill Carnival was about to begin. Here's how Lewis found a sense of belonging in a most unexpected place. I've always envied people who are torn between two worlds. At least they can imagine an even split or dream of balance. Try being ravaged by three, especially when you've always been terrible at math, particularly fractions. I was born in Nigeria, raised in Jamaica, and lived most of my life in America. I like to say I'm half Nigerian, half Jamaican, and half African American. Bad math, but accurate. This is a story about bad math. 
It's about escaping those homes only to find myself, or at least a glimpse of such a thing, in a fourth place, London, whilst the city was in its annual paroxysm of cultural blending, the Notting Hill Festival. It was a total accident. I'd left the United States for Nigeria in the wake of the 1992 L.A. riots. It was my first time returning since I was a kid. Most of my trips those days were to Jamaica. The tickets were cheaper, the journey easier. Because I could still conjure up the dialect, I could pass for native or tourist whenever convenient. I couldn't pass for a tourist in Nigeria because the country didn't really have a tourist trade. I couldn't pretend to be a native either because I'd achieved American blackness. For most Africans, that was about the same as whiteness. It was also more expensive to travel there. That cost included money and gifts expected from me as the rich American cousin, uncle, nephew. Folks came out of the woodwork. After I arrived, I was broke within two weeks. There is nothing more embarrassing than a broke, rich American. I was actually there to scout the place out. I wanted to see if I could return to Nigeria after so many years in America. It was supposed to be easy, since here, blood was thicker than skin. Hey, Oibo! Oibo meant white man or foreigner. No hostility, just honesty. Uncle, I've enrolled in a new school. Apparently, they were waiting for me to pay the fees. When you come back for good, you can be a bank manager or work for an oil company. I didn't mind the heat or the mosquitoes. It was the country initiating me. I didn't mind the dysentery or vomiting. I was being purged of whiteness. The red dirt everywhere, the miles of incomplete buildings, thousands of motorcycles called okadas, buzzing by like hornets. All that was thrilling, life being lived. But my family's desire for me to be a bank manager or work for an oil company, that was too much. Not because it was impossible, but because it was likely. That was the most a writer could offer this country. So, soon after I'd arrived, I was planning an escape from my escape. This rendered clear exactly what made me an American. The ability to escape the responsibilities of other people and a globally recognizable passport. London was my layover on the way back to L.A. The black cab driver who drove me from the airport assumed I had come for Carnival. It started in two days. I didn't know what he meant because my head was still full of red dust, and I'd landed with a fever. He took me to some anonymous hotel near the airport where I survived on room service until the fever broke. I called up some Rastafarians who I'd met in L.A. This was my first time in London as an adult. Actually, the city had an important place in my personal history. It was where two of my three halves met. My mother from Jamaica studying nursing, and my father from Nigeria studying warcraft at the prestigious Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. Ras Shabaka assumed I was there for Carnival too. So did Goree. Her dreads trailed her on the floor, but were wrapped at the ends in fabric to keep them clean. They wanted to know everything about Africa. 
I dared not tell them I was escaping the motherland. They were singing along with the Carnival songs on pirate radio and laughing. That joy seemed shared on the streets as we entered some of the more ethnically diverse neighborhoods of London. There were colorful signs on walls and windows announcing Carnival events and locations. Bass-heavy music poured thick from cars, stores, and flats. It was as if the streets were suddenly magnetized, slowly pulling people shamelessly from buildings. Carnival for me had meant Trinidad, Brazil, or maybe the Labor Day Parade in Brooklyn. I hadn't thought seriously about this one, even though it appeared in many of the books I read by Caribbean writers going back to the 1950s. Turns out that my mother and father had been in London for the first Caribbean Carnival in 1959. It had been held partly in response to a wave of violent attacks against black immigrants the previous year. From such humble beginnings, that Caribbean event would become official in 1966. By this trip, it was one of the largest festivals in the world. There would be millions dancing in the streets. Though my hosts kept insisting on Carnival's blackness, I couldn't help noticing how many of the people in the streets were Indian or Pakistani or white or beige or all kinds of mixtures. They were all familiar with Caribbean music, food, and dances. It didn't take long to realize that it was precisely because of this mixing that Ras Shabaka and Gori insisted on Carnival's cultural origins. After being embattled for generations, Carnival seemed now threatened by its success. It kept exploding annually in color and sound as a beacon for black immigrant life in England. The fear was that it was British now. Or was Britain Caribbean now? I wasn't so naive to think that. But it was easy to imagine while listening to Irish kids setting up speaker boxes on the corner playing hard dance hall from Kingston, Jamaica, and speaking Jamaican Creole far better than I ever could. As did the South Asian kids dancing to techno from the African-American suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. In random back alleys, pale old veterans with pints of ale were listening to soca and calypso tunes from Trinidad, grinding their pre-war hips against indifferent waitresses. Again, this was just two days before the event. The streets already felt expectant, like a fire had been lit. God knows there was lots of smoke everywhere. Ras Shabaka and Gori delivered me to Ras Einri, an eminence grease of their community. He arrived from Trinidad in the early 70s in time to be a part of the newer generation of migrants who were less conciliatory than their parents. Their parents had come over thinking they would be welcome and that they were citizens only to discover otherwise. Ras Einri and his crew were influenced by ideologies drawn from my three halves, American black power, Jamaican Rastafarianism, and anti-colonial revolutionaries in Africa. They were of a blackness that could only come from this city. 
Carnival for them was a celebration of that blackness. At least before it became a symbol of diversity in a country that still had a rigid social and racial hierarchy. It was with Ras Einri that I got close to the Caribbean side of Carnival the day before things kicked off. I saw workshops where costumers layered bright feathers and plumages. They fitted large wooden frames to small bodies for elaborate masks and outfits. School gymnasiums and church basements, steel drum routines were perfected. The only thing that defeated the smell of smoke was jerk chicken, curry chicken, and roti prepared in bulk. The next day it was just me and the crowd. Ras Einri, laughing, said he was too old for Carnival. Ras Shabaka said it was now too white. Gori touched my shoulder while I listened to reggae songs about how Africa was our home. She disappeared behind a wall of speakers next to a crew of rainbow-haired punk rockers wearing plaid. The singer boy George leaned over from a balcony grinning widely. Before I could confirm it was him, I was pushed into another street where a Brazilian samba school controlled the vibrations. The old men sitting around a table on the sidewalk looked like they were playing cards. The crowd parted around them like a stream around a stone. Somebody was talking about Nigerians. It was a dark sister talking to a white girl holding hands. I could tell she was Nigerian. I just got back from Nigeria, I announced, unasked. It was rough. I think I expected her to talk African politics with me, but she said, yeah, that's why I never go. I was impressed by her indifference, her lack of burden. I'm half Jamaican though, I said again, unasked. And the white girl said, who isn't? Then they were gone too. I was disarmed by this, as well as by the random gifts of food and beer. But there is something about the mix of crowd and sound that depersonalizes you. You lose yourself, as the cliché goes. But in doing that, the opposite can happen. Exhausted and sticky with sweat, from the swirl of the crowd, the city looked different. Everything looked different. In a shop front window, I caught a glimpse of someone. It turned out to be me. For the first time ever, he looked just like everybody else. It was a freedom I'll never forget. That was Louis Chewed Soki. In addition to his many other hats, he's also one of the curators for Carnegie Hall's citywide Festival of Afro-Tourism in 2022. The festival will bring together music, visual arts, science fiction, and technology to, quote, imagine alternate realities and a liberated future viewed through the lens of Black cultures. If you want to check it out, head to New York City in February 2022. Lewis says when he's not spending far too much time on Zoom, teaching classes, doing virtual readings to promote his book, and attending endless meetings, he's gearing up for a trip to Germany. And yes, he does hope to get back to London in time for Carnival in August. It was canceled last year, so this year should be incredible, he says. 
Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff, Jen Grossman, and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redman, Irene Wang, Angela Johnston, and Nina Gainsler-Debs. I'm Aislinn Green, your semi-impatient travel-ready host. I can't wait to hit the road again and again. As we begin to explore the world once more, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? <laughs>